Please remain standing and turn in your Bible to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verses 33 to 37. Hear now God's word. Again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. Let's pray. Father, again, as we come before you this morning and look into your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would cleanse our hearts and our minds of all outside uh, thoughts this morning, that we would focus on what your Spirit is saying to the church. We pray, Father, that as we leave this place, that we would be changed, that we would be different, because we have had an encounter with the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A number of years ago, I was planning on leaving Long Island. We were packing our bags and trying to see if we couldn't get off of Long Island. And so I had closed the business down that I was working in, and I was needed a part-time job to make a little money. Obviously, the Lord didn't let us leave. But I, at that point, I still needed a little bit of money. So a, a friend of mine had become the chief of police in uh, a small village on the North Shore. And he uh, offered a, a part-time job to me, coming in as a patrolman and uh, just doing a little part-time work for him in this village. So I showed up when I was at the appointed time. And I walked in. And the chief wasn't there. And there was a, a, a fellow officer who I'd known for a number of years. And he was there, and as I walked through, he looked at me, he took the badge, threw it to me, and cursed at me. And I looked, I said, what in the world is wrong with you? And he says, well, the chief told me I should swear you in. It was his attempt to be funny, but it points out something. It points out the confusion over the words swear, curse, vows, oaths, uh, people take them in many different ways. And he thought that this was very funny instead of having the, the formal ceremony of me standing and swearing me, and he cursed at me. How many times have you heard a mother say to her child, I swear to God, if you don't stop that, have you ever heard that? What does she mean when she says that? Is she prepared to come before the almighty God and call down curses on her child? Is that what she really means when she says? That's what she's saying, but is that what she really means? You've heard the expression, oh yeah, he swears like a drunken sailor. Well, we all know what that means. That means that the person has a dirty mouth. It's someone we don't want our wife or children to be around. You know, the Quakers, which are also known as the Society of Friends, uh, they won't swear at all, even in a court of law. Uh, they won't take any governmental oaths. They won't, if you bring them into court, they will not swear. See, the words oath, vow, swear, all take on different meanings and connotations depending on who you're talking to and how you're using them. What is the biblical teaching on oaths and vows and swearing? In our text this morning, Matthew 5, verses 33 to 30, 37, what is Jesus talking about when he says, you shall not make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord? You know, if you remember in the beginning of our study in the book of Matthew, I, I gave you an analogy that Martin Luther used towards approaching the scriptures. 
Uh, Martin Luther uh, gave this analogy towards Bible study. Maybe some of you weren't there. If you remember, though, if you were, uh, Martin Luther said that studying the scriptures is like approaching a forest. Uh, you're walking down the road and you see this vast forest out there, and you really can't make much out, but all you see is green. And then as you get closer, you can start to make out some individual trees. There's a pine, there's an elm, there's an oak. And then as you get closer and actually enter the forest, you notice that on the trees uh, there are branches. And if you really want to study it, you climb the tree and you get out on one of the branches and you find leaves and you start to examine the leaves and you see there's differences in the leaves. And then if you pick up the leaf and you learn, turn it over, you see veins and little in intricacies on these leaves. That's how we approach the study of scriptures. And what we've done is we've looked at an overview of the book of Matthew as looking at a forest and then we walk closer and we look at some of the main topics and now we've actually, in our study, as we've approached the Sermon on the Mount, we've actually climbed the tree and we're dissecting the leaves, verse by verse, as we're going through this sermon. This morning, we're going to look at another leaf. But before we do, I think at this point in our study, it is time for us to climb down from the tree and take a few steps back so we can put things in perspective again. Sometimes when you look at the minutia and the details, we can get lost as to where we are and we need to step down and look at the big picture. So we're going to just going to, we're not going to come all the way out of the forest this morning. Uh, we're just going to come back and take a look at the tree, if you will. You see, we've studied in hermeneutics in this church We've studied the importance of context and the meaning to verses. Uh, we've seen how many men have distorted the truthfulness of Scripture because they failed to apply good, solid rules of interpreting the Scripture. So this morning we're just going to back up and we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole as we've looked at it and then go into these few verses. If you remember, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And we spent one Sunday morning for each of the Beatitudes. And what we saw was that the Beatitudes are not something that we are looking for in the future, but they are the characteristics of the essence of the Christian. All Christians must possess these characteristics. All of them. Uh, the Beatitudes are not a smorgasbord where we can come in and pick and choose and say, yes, I'd like to be pure in heart, uh, but as for that uh, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, I'll pass on that. Give me a double dose of being meek, but I'll pass on some of the other things. No, uh, the scripture makes it clear that when you are born again, all of those characteristics are given to you as being part of, part of being a Christian. We saw that based on the characteristics in the Beatitudes, that the Christian is given somewhat of a job description of what he is, and that is that he is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He's the city set on a hill. Again, what we saw was this is what you are. You, it's not something that you strive to be. You are this. The only question is how well do you perform the function? You're a, you're a light in the world whether you know it or not if you're a Christian. But are you giving off true light? Is the salt salty? Or has the salt become like the food that is on and therefore not doing its job? As Jesus explained these principles to his disciples, he must have anticipated that they were having some thoughts. He said, wait a minute, this is radical teaching. Is this something new that's coming down? And what does this do to the law of Moses? So Jesus then goes on to explain his relationship to the law of Moses. And we saw just a few verses above from our text this morning that he says very unequivocally, he says, I didn't come to abolish not even the smallest letter, not even the smallest stroke of the law will pass away. He says, I've come as the fulfillment of it. He says, I am the one who gave the law to Moses to give to you. And that law will stand as long as there's a heaven and an earth. He uses two of the most immutable things, heaven and earth, 
to demonstrate that his law will stand. You see, there is no antithesis between Jesus and the law of Moses. Jesus is behind the law of Moses as the lawgiver. And we also saw that one of the reasons for that is because the law of God is the actual expression of the immutable character of God. There is no way that that law could change because it represents the immutable characteristics of God himself. Then in verse 20, Jesus sets up the premise for the entire rest of the, of the sermon. In verse 20, he says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the premise for the whole rest of the sermon. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had taken the law that Moses had given to them, and they had reduced it to a regimen of external commands and observances. They had neatly redefined the law into something that they could live with. Jesus says, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. He says, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness is going to have to surpass that righteousness, the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, now let me tell you what the law really means. He says, you've heard what the scribes and Pharisees, what the hypocrites have said to you. He says, now I'm going to tell you what the law that Moses gave you really means. He says, this is what kingdom life is all about. And then Jesus continues from that, and, he's, and he starts with an exposition of six very particular errors of the Pharisees. And what he does in each of these portions of Scripture is he takes that error of the Pharisees concerning the law of Moses, exposes it for the error that it is, and then says, now this is what it really means. You remember that first he explained that it's not good enough to refrain from killing people. He said, if you have anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. Young children, let me ask you a question. You were here, most of you were here for that message. Are you a murderer? Well, I've never killed anyone. How many times have you said, I hate my brother? I hate my sister. I hate them. Jesus says that if you say that you hate your brother, you're a murderer. You're a murderer. I guess that just isn't confined to the children, is it? How many times do we as adults say in our hearts, I hate him. Can't stand that person. God says, that's murder. Then he said it's not good enough to avoid the physical act of committing adultery. He says, the Pharisees had done all kinds of things, and oh, yes, if we, 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 we don't do this, we, we observe this portion of the law. And Jesus said, if you're even looking at a woman in your heart with lust, you've already committed adultery. And then he exposed the treachery, and I mean treachery of the Pharisees as they tried to get around the adultery, the adultery laws by divorcing their wives and marrying new ones. And we saw that last week that even if you get a legal divorce and the motivation of your heart is lust, you've committed adultery already. Doesn't matter that you got that legal divorce. You marry that woman, you're committing adultery. You see, Jesus is painting a pretty clear picture by now, isn't he? You see, the Christian is not a person who structures his life by a set of external rules and regulations. The true Christian is one who starts to obey the laws of God because he has been given a new heart. As we've seen going through this sermon, uh, we keep cautioning you not to fall prey to the error of the Pharisees. Uh, many people today take the exposition of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and they take it and they do the same thing with it that the Pharisees did to the Old Covenant law. Uh, they restrict the uh, the Sermon on the Mount to a new list of do's and don'ts. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did with the Old Covenant Law. And that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not establishing new law. In fact, he is not intending to give us a list of do's and don'ts at all. 
In fact, he's not even giving us a, a complete exposition of the law of Moses. What he is doing in this portion of scripture is he's giving us six illustrations of the era of the Pharisees so that we can use his exposition to determine on how to apply God's law to every aspect of our life. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. So now we come to our text about swearing. And the first thing we want to look at is, what does the Old Covenant really say about it? And if we look at, there's three main texts that, 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 that talk about swearing in the Old Covenant. Exodus 20, verse 7 is the third commandment. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Then we see in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. And then in Leviticus 19, verses 11 and 12, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You know, if we just look at those three verses and we start to say, okay, these are the three, there's other verses that correspond to it, but what are, what's the essence of these three verses? What is God doing as he gives these laws? I think there's a few purposes that we can just glean right out of it. First thing we can see is the main intent of the Old Covenant law regarding swearing was to put a stop, to put an end to man's proneness to lie. Uh, that's the main purpose of these laws. You see, only a cursory look at Scripture itself is necessary to demonstrate that man has a bent towards lying. We see that in, in the first family. Cain kills Abel, and God approaches him and says, where's your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? He knew. He had killed him, and he tries to deceive God. Abraham uh, goes into Egypt with Sarah, and he says, oh, she's my sister. We see that followed up by Isaac with, uh, with Rebekah. Oh, she's my sister to Abimelech. Laban to Jacob. Jacob goes to work for Rachel. And lo and behold, he winds up with Leah. Laban lies. He deceives. We see it with Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers hate him, and so they, they hatch this plot, and they lie to their father. Uh, that's just a brief overview. Lying and deception is woven all through Scripture ever since the fall. So we can say pretty much unequivocally that the main purpose of these laws in the first place was to get men to deal honestly with each other and with God. That's the purpose. Has anything really changed? Is there no longer a need for us to regulate the, deal, the way we deal with one another? Is America so honest today that we don't need laws against deception and fraud? The rule of the day is contracts were made to be broken. How many times have you heard that? Uh, in the marketplace, what's the cry? Caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. I've got something to sell. I'm going to get as much as I can for it. I'm going to tell you as little as I can about it. It's up to you to try to figure out what I'm doing. How much lying and deception takes place in the church? How much lying and deception takes place within churches that name the name of Jesus Christ? Well, that's too convicting. I'll move on to the next point. Another purpose which comes, becomes clear uh, in the purpose of the law is to restrict swearing and oath-taking to serious matters. You see, when you look at the commands in the Old Covenant about taking oaths and swearing and taking vows, it's always portrayed and linked in Scripture to a solemn occasion and or worship. Uh, the taking of oaths, the taking of vows is actually a form of worship. 
and therefore it should be restricted to something that is serious and not to be taken lightly. Nowhere in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, do you ever, ever see any teaching about vows and oaths that it's to be taken lightly and something to be done as a matter of course. It's just not there. Quite the contrary. It is usually either preceded or followed by words such as, I am the Lord your God. Take this seriously, is what he's saying. Now notice very carefully as well, though, that the Old Covenant never says not to swear. It never says that. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, we see that the, the clear word is, and swear by his name. We're told to swear by the name of God. You see, the Old Covenant made it clear also that when you swear by his name that you must fulfill those oaths and those vows. It is not something to be taken lightly. Uh, Psalm 76 verse 11 says this, Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Uh, that's almost a command to make vows. But linked with the command to make vows is to fulfill them. Uh, we read earlier in Psalm 116, two of the verses in Psalm 116, both 14 and 18, are synonymous. They say, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. And verse 18 says the same thing. So we see that the making of vows is commanded by Scripture in the name of God and that you are then obligated to fulfill those vows. To what extent? Even if it hurts. Even if it hurts. Psalm 15, we read earlier, let me read it again. Psalm 15 is a description, an old covenant description of who are those who are to walk in the kingdom of God. In other words, who are those who are truly the children of God? And Psalm 15 says, O Lord, who may abide in thy tent? Who may dwell on thy holy hill? He who walks with integrity and walk, works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Notice the way it's coming out already. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but he who honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's the picture of the believer. Uh, you make a vow, you make a promise, and all of a sudden you realize, hey, wait a minute, this is going to cost me. Uh, I didn't recognize what I'm doing, and, and, and this maybe even was foolish. Maybe I shouldn't have made this agreement because this is going to cost me money. Or maybe it's going to cost me inconvenience or cost me time. The believer in Jesus Christ who swears, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. We see a great picture of that in Joshua and the Gibeonites. Joshua chapter 9, verses 15 to 20. Let me read this. You remember what has happened. Uh, the Gibeonites have, have come to the Israelites because they have somehow gotten, they had a pretty good spy network, I guess, because they understood what the plan of God was. All the nations that lived in the confines of the land of Canaan were, were scheduled for extinction. Uh, they were going to be wiped out. So the Gibeonites, but the, the nations that lived afar away, they could make peace with the Israelites. So the Gibeonites get wind of this and they come to Joshua and they go into a deception and claim that they have come from far away. Uh, they put on old clothes, old shoes, stale bread they carry with them. And they come to the children of Israel and they tell them, look, we've come from afar away. We've heard about you. We'd like to make peace. And they make peace with them. They don't inquire of the Lord. They do it rashly. And then listen, this is in verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. And it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. They deceived them. And the sons of Israel set out and came to the cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Cherephah and Beroth and kerith Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. 
But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, lest wrath be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. Don't you wish that we lived in a country where people considered oaths in the way that Joshua and his leaders did? Here they were, they were deceived. They were victims of deception. And it was going to cost them. But because they had sworn an oath in the name of Jehovah, they said, we cannot change. We will pay our vow to the Lord. So what are the principles and the overriding principles we can glean from the Old Covenant teaching? First, we can see that the Lord's name is holy and is not to be taken in vain. God places a great deal of importance on his very name, and it is not something that we are to take in vain. And that goes beyond cursing. Certainly it includes cursing, but it goes beyond to frivolously using his name. We are not to swear falsely. When we know something to be false, we are not to swear to it. We are not to swear falsely. And when we swear, it must be done in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord only. And then the last thing we see is that the oath or the vow must be fulfilled. It must. It is an obligation. When we make a vow in the name of the Lord, our obligation to fulfill it is to God. I want you to notice something here. We haven't even turned the pages yet into the New Testament. This is the conduct that was expected by God, even of his old covenant saints. This was the way they were to walk. It was anticipated and told them, this is the way I want you to, to live. So now, what did the Pharisees do with these principles? Matthew 5, verse 33, Jesus says, Again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now remember again the wording of Jesus. When we see Jesus saying, you have heard that the ancients were told, he is not quoting scripture. When Jesus quoted scripture, he said, it is written. Or Moses has said, or things along those lines. What he is referring to is the error or the teaching of the old rabbis and the Pharisees. That's why he says, you have heard that the ancients were told. And we went into quite a bit of detail explaining that phrase earlier. You see, what the Pharisees had done with these laws where they had wrenched them from their original meaning and had given their own legalistic interpretations to them. They had reduced the commandments specifically pertaining to vows to mean only perjury had nothing to do whatsoever with everyday life. In other words, swearing falsely meant you don't go into a court of law and swear falsely. That's, no, that's a no-no. You can't do that. That's perjury. So that you can't do. They reduced the rest of the meaning of the law to external rules and regulations. By their practices and by their words, what they did was they said that the laws regarding swearing are only to, to involving the legal matters. They don't apply to everyday circumstances. That's in essence what they did. And then, in the hypocritical fashion of the Pharisees, then they would denounce perjury in the strongest possible language while they were living in deception day in and day out in their daily affairs. Second thing that they did was they invented the idea of swearing by creatures. Look at verses 34 to 36. Jesus explained, he says, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the, the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one here white or black. You see, they established what they did was a hierarchy of oaths. Uh, these oaths are binding, uh, these oaths aren't binding. 
Uh, we see that again in Matthew 23, where Jesus uh, pronounces woes on the Pharisees. In verse 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. There's, uh, I've got a couple of quotes here from the Talmud. Uh, listen to some of the language of what they had done with the law. Uh, this is John Lightfoot quoting some, from some of the uh, Talmud. It says, it was customary and usual among them to swear by the creatures. Now this is a quote. If anyone swear by heaven, by earth, by the sun, although the mind of the swearer be under these words to swear by him who created them, yet this is not an oath. You see what they've done? They, they, they put in a, a, a catchphrase for themselves so that they could go and look so pious by swearing by earth and by heaven and by the sun, uh, but legally that's not binding because it's not within the right formula. Um, or if any, if any swear by some of the prophets or by some of the books of the scripture, although the sense of the swearer be to swear by him that, the pro that sent the prophet or gave that book, nevertheless, it's not an oath. Uh, if any adjure another by heaven or earth, he is not guilty. So if you swore by heaven or earth, and then you were taken to task, oh, oh no, I only swore by heaven and earth, I'm not guilty. It's okay that I lied. And then there's a whole uh, list of some of the things, of, of how the form says, we're also after two lines coming between these forms, swearing and vowing are added. So here's the way the form the swear had, had to go by Jerusalem. It's you're swearing by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem, and by Jerusalem. Uh, the temple for the temple and by the temple. The altar for the altar and by the altar. If you didn't have that phraseology, then the oath wasn't legally binding. This is what Jesus is referring to very specifically in the text. He is talking about this type of, of Phariseeism and trivializing of the oaths. The other, th which leads us to the third thing that they did, and that is to trivialize oaths and swearing. They did it for almost any reason that made them look good. Here's another one from the Talmud. They seemed indeed to make some provision against a vain and rash oath, namely that he be beaten who so swears and becomes, become cursed. In other words, they give you an example. He that swears that two is two, let him be beaten for his vain oath. In other words, if you're going to they're trying to prevent the vain swearing. So they say, two plus two equals four. I swear. Well, you should be beaten for that because there's no need to swear for such a, a trivial oath. Yet, they concluded vain oaths in so narrow a circle that a man might swear a hundred thousand times and yet not come within the limits of caution concerning vain swearing. If it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, don't worry about it, because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, period. But you see what they had done, they had come up with this whole structure of how they could get away with dealing falsely and not be guilty. So what does Jesus say? The exposition of Jesus, he starts off and he says in verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all. Now, many people in their exposition of this stop right there. They say very clearly, Jesus forbids the taking of any oath. End of the story, right there. Jesus says, make no oath. But that's a gross misreading of the text. The verse doesn't stop there. The verse continues. 
In fact, what we see as we look at the context of this is Jesus is not even referring to the taking of lawful oaths. He is responding specifically to the false teaching of the Pharisees. In fact, the text is so clear on this point that it's amazing that so many people actually misapply it. First, we can see that grammatically it doesn't make sense. Make no oath at all is modified by all that follows it. Jesus says, make no, I, but I say to you, make no oath at all. And then grammatically, that phrase is modified, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one here white or black. You see, if the phrase stood alone, make no oath, it would be a universal negative. But it is not alone. And the rest of the verses modify the first clause, make no oath. Second, we can see contextually, Jesus is not talking about lawful oaths. He's responding to the error of the Pharisees. We see that in the first three statements that we looked at. Jesus, as in the other misstatements of the law about murder and adultery and divorce, now comes on and to explain what he's talking about here. He is not making new law. Remember that. He is explaining the old law. Third, linguistically, Jesus is using a typical method of Hebrew teaching. The Hebrew is taught by giving a general statement and then giving the details to explain what that statement meant. Uh, one of the things we see this in, is in the Genesis account of creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Period. He could stop right there. But he doesn't. He goes on to the rest of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to explain what that statement means. That's typical of Hebrew teaching. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And then he gives us the antithesis of that statement. In the last verse, he says, talk about communication. But communicate this way. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. He's not talking about lawful vows. Fourth is scripturally. And that since we know that scripture never contradicts scripture, the text can't be a universal ban on swearing. Because if it is a universal ban on swearing, then it is set in opposition to other portions of scripture. Even in the New Testament subsequent to Jesus' teaching. In 2 Corinthians 1.23, Paul swore. He said, but I call God as witness to my soul. That, I spare, to, that to spare you I come no more to Corinth. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, swears before them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 1.20, now, now what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Paul swears an oath in Galatians 1.20. Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is calling an oath, God being his witness, that what he is speaking is truth. Romans 9.1, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. By the name of Christ, he is affirming the truthfulness of his statements. We also see uh, that God in the new covenant expects his saints to swear by his name. In Jeremiah 12, verses 16 to 17, he is speaking specifically about the new covenant. And he says, then it will come about that if they will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear to Baal, then they will be built up in the midst of my people. But if they will not listen, then I will uproot the nation, uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. In Revelation 10, 40 years after uh, Jesus Christ was crucified, we see an angel swearing. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder had spoken, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifting up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and all the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be no delay any longer. Then we also see that God swore. Hebrews 6, verses 16 to 19. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, 
interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. And then this leads right into what we have printed on our bulletin. The fact that God, by two unchangeable things, swore an oath is what gives us hope. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. And verse 19, and this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters the veil. What a great promise. And that's because God swore by an oath, by his holy name himself, he swore the promises to his people. There's even a fifth reason, theological reason. If Jesus was contradicting Moses, then what we have is we have Jesus and Moses pitted against one another. And that's not possible. One who gave the law to Moses. And another theological reason, in fact, it's almost common sense, and that is the purpose for oaths themselves. Remember the purpose for oaths? The laws concerning oaths were given to correct the proneness of men to lie. Why would Jesus say, do away with that law? It's to prevent lying. In other words, it's a corrective measure against falsehood and lies. You know, when carried out within the context, the biblical criteria, the taking of oaths and the swearing is good and necessary. Which again brings us to the true meaning of the text. Christ is exposing the error of the Pharisees and giving the true meaning of the law. So what is the true meaning of the law? That's summed up very nicely. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You see, unlike the Pharisees, the Christian must live daily. In his daily life, he must live honestly with integrity. That is the command. That's the essence of the laws on oaths and swearing. The Christian is to be sincere. He's to be transparent. What you see is what you get. WYSIWYG, for you computer buffs. What you see is what you get. You see, the Pharisees developed a system of non-binding oaths to give themselves an air of respectability. Oh, I swore. Of course, when you went to collect, oh, that wasn't binding. It's like the little kid descends and says, yes, I promise, and they have their fingers crossed behind their back. That's what the Pharisees did. They were hypocrites. You know, the text is a severe warning against invoking the name of God in a cavalier manner. It's a severe warning against invoking the name of God. Now, that would include cursing, but that's not its primary intent. You see, God's name is holy, and it should not be used lightly. Either in business practices, in swearing for your own benefit, or whatever, God's name is holy and should not be used lightly. I cringe when I hear somebody say, I swear to God. Do you? Do you say that? Does it just seem to roll off your tongue? Do you realize what you're saying? That you are calling on the dread name of Jehovah. Do you ever use God's name to call down judgment on someone? You know the curse I'm talking about. Do you realize what you're saying? That you're asking God to damn that soul to hell? Does that curse flow off your lips? Does the name Jesus Christ enter into your vocabulary for some reason other than worship? The Christian is to guard his speech and to guard it carefully, not to take it lightly. So then is swearing ever justified for the Christian? Is taking an oath ever justified for the Christian? And of course, I think you see by now the answer is of course it is. We've got to look at this verses, these verses of Scripture in light of Matthew 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So when can a Christian take a lawful oath? In judicial matters where testimony is important. That's the purpose of it. When testimony is important, where maybe even the life of an individual is at stake, 
then it's proper for the government officials to call in and ask you as a, as a believer to swear on the name of your God that you are going to give true testimony. That is a true and a good use of taking an oath. It should be used in solemn ceremonies. Marriage vows are oaths to God. Marriage vows are oaths to God. Uh, the getting of a divorce is forsaking and not paying a vow to God. Uh, we have a church covenant that we recite periodically. Uh, that is a vow. We are entering into a covenant together to fulfill the commission that God has granted to us and given to us here in this church. That is a solemn thing and a good thing that we should enter into. Uh, there's also in civil ceremonies we can uh, take oaths and vows. The armed services, uh, police departments, public office. These are offices where the welfare of the nation is at stake and it is good and proper to have that person swear by the name of God that he will uphold his vows. And it is a good thing that we do that. That is legitimate. You see, the swearing of oaths. In those, type of in those types of circumstances, fulfills the intent of the whole teaching of God, both Old and New Covenants. But we live in a world of profanity, don't we? Many of you, you work in offices, in businesses, you work on construction sites. It's a profane world, isn't it? How about the media? In fact, we were just talking the other night at my house. How difficult it is. It's almost impossible to go see a movie these days. Because you can't go through. They have to throw at least that one profane word in somewhere. They have to do it. How about on the playground? I mean, we're talking about the workplace, the marketplace. What about on a playground, young kids? It's a profane world there too, isn't it? I have a question for all you young ones. Do you engage in taking the Lord's name in vain in the playground? Taking the Lord's name in vain is a serious, serious offense. You know, unfortunately, even in the mouths of Christians, we hear the taking of oaths and the swearing to God's name in vain. And that ought not to be. But I want to tell you, if all you get from this third commandment and from the teaching of Christ this morning is that we're not to curse, you might as well take your seat on the Pharisee bench. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe cursing and using God's name in a curse is an abomination. But that's not the most important teaching in this portion of scripture. What God is really saying, and we get down to the intent of the law, God is looking at the heart. And he is looking for his people to keep their vows and to live daily in integrity. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 20 says, when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I have concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore they say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations when you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. They took the name of the Lord in vain by their actions, by their deeds. What they said and what they did did not match up with the Holy Scriptures of God, and they profaned his name. You know, remember that Jesus in this sermon, is he's giving us a description of kingdom life. So what's the bottom line for you and I on murder, adultery, and divorce? Are we to keep just from the physical aspects of it? Jesus says, no, your heart attitude is what I'm concerned about. 
So what about in this topic of swearing and taking oaths and vows? Only swear in matters of importance when it is clearly in line with the teaching of Scripture. You must always fulfill the vows that you make, even if it costs you, even if it hurts. The Christian must not engage in trivial and superficial vows and oaths. And the Christian, first and foremost and above all, must be a man or a woman of integrity who when you stand there that your yes is yes and your no is no. And that you are known by those both inside and outside the church of God as someone who is a man or a woman of his word. How do you stack up to the biblical teaching? Is the name of God blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you? That's the question you have to ask yourself this morning. Is the name of God blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you? Can people count on you when you say something that it will get done? You know, Christian, you may never have had a curse come off of your lips. But if you don't keep your word, if your family and your friends, your co-workers, if they can't rely on you, then the name of God is being blasphemed because of you. If you're in here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you've seen yourself in, in the description of lies and deception and, and knowing that you're not a truthful person. Scripture tells us that that's our nature before we're saved. Boy, I've got good news for you. In that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Come to him this morning in repentance. Ask him for forgiveness of your sin. And he'll give you the new heart that will enable you to start to obey his commands and to walk in righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and even as the prophet Isaiah said, as he looked at your holiness, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Father, I think all of us this morning can look at your holy word and say that we all have dirty mouths. We pray, Father, that you would cleanse our hearts, give us the grace we need to walk in integrity. We pray, Father, that you would give us the grace that as we go about our daily walk in our, our work, our school, our communities, our homes, that we would truly be known as men and women of our word, that they would look and say, yes, He's a Christian. She's a Christian. Their yes is yes. Their no is no. You can count on them. Father, we pray that this would be a church that is known by all of its neighbors and all that we come in contact with of people who deal honestly and righteously before our God. Father, we just pray that you would keep us from taking your name in vain. We thank you for the grace, the mercy that you've poured out upon us. We thank you for our salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that this morning, if there is one who doesn't know you, that your Holy Spirit would work on their heart, convict them, give them a new heart, that they might come to know you as Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.